right. Well, again, it's great to be with you uh, this morning. I'm thankful that um, before Pastor uh, Levi left this week uh, to go down to preach in Pyeongtaek, he raised the stand back up for me. Uh, I was really grateful for that. It was very low. <laughs> I love you, Pastor Levi. I'm, uh, I'm kidding, but I was coming, uh, driving back from Pyeongtaek. I was preaching down in our church there last week, had the honor of doing that. Just so you know, they're doing very well. Um, they send their greetings to you, but um, I was driving back from Pyeongtaek last week, and um, I put our, our, our YouTube service, you know, on and finished and on, and I was driving, you know, listening to the service, just listening, not watching YouTube. I wouldn't do that as I'm driving. And, uh, and saw the, the stand, and Levi made his joke, and so all week long I was preparing to make this stand as low as I possibly could, and I thought, I thought no, I won't be that mean. I'll, uh, but I, I got up here, and I'm like, I'm going to skip it, and then I'm like, no, this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for me to take a jab at him, too. So there you go, Pastor Levi. All right. Thank you for raising the stand for your taller brother. All right. <laughs> All right. It is good to be back with you, though, uh, after, after a week of being down in Pyeongtaek. Uh, I tell you this every time I come back to FEC. So grateful to be here. So grateful to be back with you. Uh, nothing. I love preaching God's word anywhere, but nothing replaces uh, teaching you uh, for, for me and I'm so excited to be able to do that again once uh, again today. If you, are, if you are new to our gathering, uh, two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series, uh, working through the themes of Advent. And with that, we have thus far uh, explored the, the topic of hope. We did that two weeks ago. We went through Lamentations 5. And then last week, Pastor Levi was up here, and he preached on the topic of love uh, through the end of the book of John, and, and looking at that really convicting question that Jesus asked Peter, Jesus, do you love me? And so talked about that topic of love. And now uh, today we turn to the topic of joy. And what an interesting uh, and, and deep topic this is. You know, from, from day one, uh, Satan has used our desire, our need for joy and satisfaction against us. Uh, if you recall, his original temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden, what did he do? Well, he suggested, he suggested to them that, that God was withholding something from them, right? That he was withholding something good from them. The temptation suggested that God was withholding a deeper level of joy, and that if they would just eat of the fruit that God had told them not to touch, if, if they would just do that one seemingly small sin, then they would find true and lasting satisfaction. See, from the very beginning, this has always been our enemy's strategy. He tries to get us to believe that God is opposed to our joy. And that a life of sin, a life that follows the ways of the world, can and will bring you real pleasure, true joy. But of course, of course, the truth of the Bible is that sin may bring you short-term joy, but it always brings long-term pain. And in turn, 
submitting to God, following Jesus, it might bring you, often it will, bring you short-term difficulty, short-term pain. It's sacrifice, but it always results in lasting pleasure. In fact, this is one of the core principles of our faith. If you're familiar with the Westminster Catechism, the shorter version of it, it begins this way. It asks a question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're about. Or as a very well-known pastor, most of you know this name, John Piper, he has thoughtfully put it this way, and I think actually improved a bit on the Westminster Catechism. He says it this way, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. You see, our reality is that we all seek joy. We all seek happiness with our lives. And that desire actually serves as the the root, if you will. It's the root cause of every single action that you take. Every decision that you make is ultimately about your joy. We choose to do the things We choose to go towards the things that we believe will make us the most happy. We do that every single time. And because God has put that within us, he's actually put that that desire deep within our, our essence, our being, if you will. It shouldn't surprise us that the Bible appeals to that desire and gives us a solution for it. And that's why today we are turning to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Because Psalm 16 is all about experiencing joy and experiencing pleasure in God. Psalm 16 gives us the solution to finding fullness of joy for our lives. And so what we're going to do today, it's actually pretty simple. We're just going to walk through this psalm verse by verse. And then through it, my hope is that today all of us would find this settled calm, that we would discover an inward peace and have an, an outward confidence that the, tr- that the joy and the pleasure that we desperately seek, uh, seek for our lives can be found. So we open up the psalm together now, and we see here uh, King David, he writes this psalm. And he starts with a petition. Okay? He starts with a plea. It's a request. He says this. This is how it starts. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So that's a, a prayer, right? It, it's a request. Uh, we don't know yet what David wants to be preserved from or to be preserved for. We're going to see that shortly. But this plea is what drives the entire psalm. David wants to be kept. He wants to be secure. And so from there, he moves forward by declaring or exalting in what God is for him. He says, he says preserve me, God, for in you... I take refuge. Or you could say, preserve me because, because I take refuge in you. God, I declare that you are a refuge 
for me. Therefore, therefore, preserve me. See, David is declaring what God is for him as the reason, as the foundation of his hope, that God will preserve him. That's what the for means there. And this is what David seems to be doing all the way through verses 1 through 8 of this psalm. He is declaring who God is. He is exalting in what God is for him as a way of strengthening his soul, strengthening his hope that God will in fact come through, that God will answer his plea, that God will respond to this prayer of preservation. And so let's follow David through this and see what God is for him. And then in that, what I want us to do is ultimately find or see, discover where that leads. So again, in verse one, he says, for in you, I take refuge. Now, uh, so many of the Psalms, we know the immediate context. Here in Psalm 16, we don't. We don't know whether David wrote this uh, at a time in his life when he was in imminent danger, like when he's on the run or when he's hiding, or if he was just reflecting on the general course uh, of his life. But the fact is, we all need a place. And actually, we all desire for ourselves a place of refuge. We want safety. We long for protection. We want security. And that's why instinctively, we know this, we try to protect ourselves from harm and danger, right? It's why we, in general, avoid risks that could kill us, okay? It's why we wear seatbelts when we drive. It's why we go to the hospital when we feel really sick. Or for David's context, it's why we know that he lived in a walled palace or had temple guards or why he wore armor when he went out to battle, when he was king, because we all seek safety. We all want refuge. But here David says, above all else, Lord, above all the protection, the refuge that I have, even as king, I seek refuge in you. You are my safest place, my ultimate refuge. So I turn to you now for true safety, true protection. See, David knew the one who holds all things together. He knew ultimately whose, whose hands his life was in. And so he acknowledges that here. Then he moves from there and says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. So, so David first addresses, it's interesting what he does with that word Lord there, two different words. First, he addresses God as Yahweh here. I say to the Lord, Yahweh. Then he says, you are my Lord, that's Adonai. Yahweh, the God of his fathers, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? The God who keeps his covenantal promises, God of the, his fathers, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then he says, you are my Adonai, meaning you are my master. I'm your servant. You are not just my master. The, the direct translation is you are the sovereign, not just the sovereign one. You are just the sovereign, uh, the one who rules all things, including my life. 
See that you are my Lord, he says. You're not just the sovereign, you're my sovereign. And to that God, he writes, I have no good apart from you. In other words, God, you are my supreme treasure. You are my highest treasure. There is no one above you in terms of goodness. There is no one apart from you, my Lord. As Psalm 73:25 says, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, listen to this, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who once said, he who has God and everything else has no more than who, who, he who has God only. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. So let me ask you today, can you truly affirm this truth in your heart? Lord, I have no other good besides you. Nothing, just you. You are my highest treasure. You are my ultimate reward. Can you today, can you say you are not just God, you are not just Lord, can you truly declare you are my God, my Lord, and I desire nothing on earth but you? This should be the posture of the heart for those of us who follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul is a really good example of this. Remember what he says in Philippians 3. We studied the book of Philippians, uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, but he says these beautiful words in Philippians 3. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. See that? For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I have considered my life. I've observed it. Meditate on my life. And everything around me, I've observed it. Everything, Lord. And what I have found is that there is no good apart from you. You, my Lord, are my highest treasure. You, Lord, are the sovereign one of all. Well, then, David does something very interesting in verse 3 because he actually here underlines how precious God is to him. He, he tells God that he is his highest good by talking about how he relates to God's people, how David relates to God's people. He says, as for the saints in the land, he's talking about the holy ones, godly ones, the people who, who treasure God, the people who live their lives for the Lord. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So David here, he, it's interesting, he finds himself a, a measure of delight and joy. And understand, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean here that he has delight in God's people instead of God or above God. No, he means that he means that godless people don't give him delight in their godless ways. That's a side note. Only the godly people give him joy. What, what delights him about people, he says, is how they treasure God and exalt God. 
This is the sweetness of his relationships. He's observing his relationships. He's looking at his life and he's saying, oh, I find joy in their joy. Um, I exalt in their exaltation. David's point here is, is that his joy in God is actually enhanced because he has delighted himself in the company of God's people, other saints. The idea is, the idea here is that we should delight in the company of God's people, growing together in holiness, growing together in love, as together we find joy in the Lord. So your joy can become my joy. My joy should become your joy. And we see here that David's thoughts about God's people also causes him to more deeply reflect on those that turn their backs on God and pursue idols. There's a comparison here. Verse 4 says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Uh, Really simply put, there's a lot there, but simply put, David's just saying, I value God so highly that I dare not run to other gods. That's all he's saying. It would be foolish, he's saying, to embrace other things that only leave us empty in the end. Only you give me joy, so why would I turn to anything else? And so not only, he says, not only will I not go after those things, knowing how entrapping and enticing those, those people or those sins can be, he says, I won't even talk about them. They, they won't even be mentioned on my lips. Not just walking towards, they won't even be mentioned. See that? This is a, a statement here of exclusivity. Okay. The Lord is my Lord, he says. But beyond that, what he's telling his readers is, he is the only Lord. He's not just my Lord. He's not just the Lord. He's the only Lord. The only one who is worthy of being the object of our worship which is why he then turns and says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Again, he's observed. He's looked at the God-less people, the the God-fearing people. He's observed his own life and, and the Lord. And now he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In other words, if there are, if there are a hundred portions of even the best food, best drink spread out on the table. And again, he's a king, right? There's a feast before me, but one of those things is the Lord himself. Every single time, he is my choice. I have found, he says, that nothing satisfies, nothing nourishes and sustains the way that he does. Again, he is my greatest good. He is my highest pleasure. Nothing compares to him. And with that, David says, you hold my lot. You hold my lot. And this here is a a clear statement or declaration of God's sovereignty. He's saying, whatever happens to me comes from the hand of the Lord. Again, God holds my life in his hands. He decides what happens to me. He rules over me. And, And please note, David is not saying this here as just a mere matter of fact. Okay, we'd be mistaken if we read it that way. This is praise. It's jubilation. 
It's not just a fact. There is joy here, emotion. He's saying, the God of the universe holds my life in his hands. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In other words, God uses that power that he has as the sovereign to make himself my beautiful inheritance, to fence me in to the pleasures of knowing him. He makes himself my treasure. We know the context here. Uh, we know that when God established the 12 tribes of Israel, he, had, he set apart a nation for himself. He divides them into 12 tribes, 12 groups. When he did that, he not just divided them in 12 groups, he actually portioned out the land for them. And he divided the land up. He divided it 11 ways, but there's 12. Because um, to one group, the Levites, who were the priests, the pastors of that day, I guess. He did not give them an inheritance of the land. Okay? They got left out. Rather, the Lord said to Aaron, who was the high priest of that tribe, he says this to Aaron in Numbers 18. He says this, You, your people, the Levites, you shall have no inheritance in the land, nor own any portion among them. Why? He says, for I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Well, here in Psalm 16, I believe very clearly we see here David reflecting on that truth, that reality, and he applies it to himself. He's saying God has in his goodness, in his grace and mercy, as the sovereign one, God has chosen to place me within his borders. I have been drawn within his boundary lines. And in knowing him, in being with him, in having a relationship with him, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. It's not about land. It's not about his bank account. He says, I have a beautiful inheritance because I'm with the Lord. So, so do you see how David is just continuously exalting the Lord here? And he continues in verse 7, he goes one step further in this. One step further in exalting in what God is for him. So God is not only his refuge. God is not only his treasure. We've seen that. God is not only his sovereign. We see next that God is also his counselor. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Now, I want us to see here that this is not a small, nor is it an insignificant add-on here. That this truth that God is his counselor actually colors, if you will, every single thing that we've read thus far. The, the way that God is a refuge, a treasure, the way he is a, a sovereign is colored by the reality that he is our counselor as well. So, for example, try to follow me here. God is a refuge for us in part by the way that he instructs, by the way that he guides, or by the way that he counsels us into his safety. Okay? So we have to understand having refuge, having security is not always automatic, right? 
So if, if we are in danger, or if we find ourselves in a place of deep sin, what does God do? God counsels us how to escape, right? How to get out. He instructs us by his word. So you might say, God becomes our refuge by counseling us in how to walk in the way of life and not in the way of death. See that? And he is our treasure, David said. Also in part because he is our counselor. See, he's not just precious to us. He's not our ultimate treasure just because of the beauty of his character, because of that he's just and, 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 and merciful and, and, and righteous. Those are all good things, but he's not just precious to us because of his character or the beauty of his character, but also because of the beauty of his counsel, the beauty of his teachings. Right? Isn't that exactly what the religious leaders and the disciples of Jesus said about Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry? Do you remember what he said? Or they said about him? They said about Jesus, Jesus would teach, and they would say things like, nobody, nobody speaks like this man, right? His followers were, were constantly stunned by him, amazed by the things that he would say, amazed by his wisdom and his insight and his discernment. He was so crafty and wise and holy. And so we treasure him for his teaching and wisdom and encouraging promises, he is not, in other words, what I'm trying to get to is he's not a treasure in some abstract way. He reveals his all-satisfying beauty and value to us in his word, in his teachings, in his counsel. They come to us, David says, even in the night, meaning when our thoughts may be dark, when our thoughts may doubt, when our thoughts may be wandering, he gives us counsel. He gives us or brings us back to the path of life. So for seven verses now, David has been exalting in what God is for him. His refuge, his treasure, his sovereign, his counselor. And then we see the shift in verse eight. David cries out in the very beginning, preserve me then spends seven verses exalting in what God is for him. And now, what has become of David's prayer? What has become of his plea for preservation that led him to exaltation? Confidence. Confidence in the Lord. Look at verse 8. And notice with me here, David is no longer asking. He is now affirming. Listen, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David says here, God will preserve me. I will not be shaken. I will not be moved. I will be kept. I will be guarded. I will be preserved. So his petition, his plea has now, it's, it's so beautiful, the psalm. His plea for preservation has now become a declaration. Does that make sense? Because his refuge, his treasure, his sovereign, his counselor is always before him, he says. He's always at my right hand. Therefore, David says, I will not be shaken. 
So this is no longer a request of the Lord. This is an affirmation of what is true in the Lord. It's, it's profound. His plea in the beginning has now become transformed into his confidence. And so do you see what this means for us? It means that the pathway from petition or plea to confidence is heralding who God is, or more specifically, heralding or exalting what God is for us. This is honestly a great formula for prayer. You should practice this. It's foolproof. We cry out to God. Isn't prayer a lot of times this way? It doesn't start with this like overwhelming confidence all the time. I don't know about you. Maybe you're different than me. Sometimes it's just, it's questioning. It's wondering. It's, it's desperate. Crying out to God, help me. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need fill in the blank. But once you do that, then what should you do? You declare who God is. You exalt him. You are my treasure, Lord. You are great. You are in control. And as you do that again and again and again, surely your confidence will arise just like David here. That's the flow that we see throughout Psalm 16. And please understand, let me be clear, this is about much more than just stating who God is for us. Again, I want to be sure, this is a heart engagement. It's about your emotions. This is coming from the, the inward part of our being. Again, it's exaltation. It's jubilation. It's rejoicing. There are real emotions and feelings present here in Psalm 16. What David has done, he's, he's actually taken a hold of the Lord, figuratively. Okay? He's grasped onto the truth about God. He's settled in his heart who God is, and that settledness has now become his unshakable confidence. Now, it's on the basis of that confidence that we then arrive at verse 9. And this is the high point of the argument. It's the therefore of joy. Okay? David says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. In case there's any confusion there, that word glory, my glory, um, it's a word in the Old Testament that refers to the soul. Okay? So he's saying, therefore my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My flesh always dwells securely. So essentially, David is simply but powerfully saying, the whole of my being, inwardly and outwardly, is glad. Everything about me and around me, in me, is filled with joy. So there was a plea for preservation that led to exaltation, which led to an unshakable confidence, and now there's joy. See the pattern? Petition, exaltation, confidence, therefore my heart is glad and I rejoice. That's the pattern. Petition, exaltation, confidence, therefore I have joy. David is truly glad now, truly glad. And then we finally get the answer to the question. The first question from verse one, 
What did David want to be preserved from? What did he want to be kept from? Secure from? After all, that was his plea, right? That was his prayer. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me. Well, the answer to that is in verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul. That word for is very important. For you will not abandon my soul to show or let your Holy One see corruption. So this here is the preservation that David asked for. When he asked, preserve me, O God, ultimately he meant, don't let me be lost in death, O Lord. Don't let me be shaken from the realm of the living. Keep me both body and soul forever. That's what he's asking. So I want us to get a little confusing because now we're talking about death and life and preservation in death, right? So I want us to follow David here. I don't want us to be confused because we could be, right? David's joy is based on his confidence that he will not be shaken. But now we also see his joy is rooted in his confidence here in verse 10, that God will not abandon him in his death. This is the preservation David wanted in verse 1, and now the preservation he is confident that he will have. David is certain, he is sure, that all God has been for him. He's certain of it. He's been my refuge. He's been my treasure. I've discovered he's been the sovereign, my sovereign, and he is my counselor. And now I am confident that he will be that for me forever. In other words, simply put, death will not be the end of his relationship with God. That's what he's saying. Death will not cancel out all that he has known and loved about his Lord. He will preserve me, David says, body and soul. David draws confidence and joy in the reality that God is not just the God of the dead, but more, he is the God of the living. And with all that in mind, all that in mind, only then can we rightly arrive at the final verse of the psalm. And it's the one that, if you know Psalm 16, you've been waiting for. And it's so strong so wonderful. David's joy has now exponentially increased. There's increase of joy, and now we get at the pinnacle. There's fullness of joy now, a forever joy. He says here, listen to this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the pathway to true life. Hear me, David is saying that full joy, forever joy, is available. It can be found. And don't miss this. What this means, what this means is that even death cannot keep us from this joy. It can be had now, and it can be had always. We have to let our hearts meditate on this. And, and it should overwhelm you. It should move you. 
Listen, David, I was trying to wrap my mind around this all week. And, and then I took like seven pages of single page notes, which is 45 minutes of me preaching, and tried to get this down into five minutes. It's so profound what, what's happening here. Listen, David actually, he knows he's going to die. He didn't want to. He hoped that the Messiah would come in his day and, and bring him, bring him back to the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. But David knew he would die. How do I know that? Because I know. No. Because, <laughs> no, I know, because, because the prophet Nathan told him from God he would die. In 2 Samuel 7, Nathan comes to David and he says this, speaking on behalf of the Lord, prophetically, he says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, David knew from God's word that he would die. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to lie in the graves like his father. He, had a, he was a man after God's own heart, and he longed and pleaded for the coming of the Messiah, but he's told he's die, he would die. But then after that, he, he is promised, you will die, but, but someone else is coming after you from your seed, from your line, who will sit on your throne. And this descendant would, would not be one of a succession of kings that goes on and on and on, not like his sons. But with him, all succession, all kingly succession would end. You see, his kingdom, David is told, his kingdom would have no end. It would be an eternal kingdom. In other words, think of this. David, King David, sitting here writing Psalm 16, he knew that a king was coming and that that king would be the final king, meaning he would defeat death. He would not see corruption like David. His kingdom would be eternal, right? We have to have to wrap our minds around this. Get this. David lived with this understanding. I will die, be laid in the grave, and I will remain there. But one is coming after me who will not remain in the grave. And that makes verse 10 of Psalm 16 so much better, so much greater. God, I know I will die. You have spoken through your prophet that I will pass away, will be laid in the grave to remain. My body will corrode. I've been told that. But even still, I know you will not abandon my soul. You will not let me see ultimate corruption because one is coming after me who will conquer the grave. Amen. David saw this. It's so profound. He knew this. He didn't know the details. He didn't know the time, the hour, who it would be exactly. But he had such confidence in this. And how do I know that? Because the Apostle Peter, hundreds of years later, 
hundreds of years, tells us this in Acts chapter 2. Listen to this. The Holy Spirit comes down on the people. The church is born. Peter starts to preach a profound sermon where thousands would come to Christ. And in the midst of that sermon, he says this. Brothers and sisters, I may say to you with, notice the word, confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not, not abandoned to Hades, to Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. And when, what does he say? This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. What is Peter saying? It's saying that David saw, oh, he saw. It was through a dim glass, a foggy, a foggy window, but he saw, if you will. He didn't know. He didn't know the details, but he did believe. I'm going to live forever somehow. He says that. That's David's confidence. I will live forever. It's been promised to me. I will lay down with my fathers, and yet even so, I am going to have joy because I'm going to be at God's right hand forevermore. Why? Because there is someone coming. A Messiah is coming after me who will live forever so that I may live forever. David had full and forever joy because he believed in God's promise that life to the fullest could not just be found, it could be had. But beyond that, David had full and forever joy because he knew God's promise. The promise of eternal life, that it meant life with his supreme, ultimate treasure. The promise meant life with God himself to be with the Lord himself forever. And so what about us? What about us? David believed in the promise of one coming. But you and I, we know who that promised one is. Peter told us there in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus God raised up. Jesus, the Messiah, the longed hoped for, final king of kings. He was born of a virgin, though 100% man. He lived a perfect life for the sake of sinners, you and I. He allowed Jesus, this Jesus, he allowed death to swallow him. But before death could digest him, before death could keep him, he killed death by raising bodily from the grave. And listen, he didn't defeat death just for himself. He also conquered death for all who would come and believe in him, for those who trusted in his Old Testament promises. 
And for all who trust him today as the Lord and the Savior today, which means, which means, and this is so good, which means today, like King David, you can know the path of life. I'm here to tell you, the path of life is Jesus Christ. He is the way. He's the truth. He is life. And there is no other way to joy to the full. There is no other way to joy forever but through him. In him, in Jesus, at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And that God, that Jesus is inviting you He's actually inviting you to himself today. He's saying to you, come to me. Come to me. He's saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come try me for yourself. So today, do you want joy? I know you do, because you're a human being like me. Do you want joy? Do you want it to the full? And do you want it forever? If you do, know Jesus as your safest refuge. There is no true safety apart from him. Know Jesus as your supreme treasure. There is no good apart from him. Know Jesus as the sovereign He holds everything together in his hands, including your very life. And know Jesus as your trusted counselor, for he is the one. He is the one who makes known the path of life. You and I, we want joy. We long for joy. In the depths of our being, we want joy. And the good news of the gospel is that full and forever joy can be not just found. It can be had. So let's exalt Christ. Let's be confident in Christ. And let's let that confidence lead us to joy now and forevermore. Amen? I'll ask the praise team to join me back on the stage.